and welcome into another episode of Turn the Corner, a Detroit Tigers podcast. I'm Kieran Seckley. With me, as always, is a man who is known on the streets of Amarillo as Mac Daddy. He is Cody Stavenhagen. How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing good, Kieran. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Um, a little PSA for the folks out there. Kind of hosting a dinner party right now. Got some people over, some lovely friends that want to come, and it's a great day from one of our dear friends, Ashley, who had her bridal shower today, and so we're having sort of like a little bit of an after party thing here, after, you know, right now. But I am dedicated to this podcast. We are recording this while we have company over. I just want people to know, in case you hear some people talking in the background, or somebody comes over, and our dogs are barking, and all that stuff. I just wanted to make that known. This podcast is important. Also, our friends are important. So I'm pulling dual duty here, Cody. And uh, I thought we were going to have a more interesting day today. <laughs> Obviously, I knew this was coming. I didn't anticipate Eduardo Rodriguez nearly throwing a perfect game, getting almost to seven innings. Uh, it, it, we're going to talk a little bit more about Eduardo in a second. But, man... Uh, the guy just knows he just he just goes about his business. It's so much fun to watch, and like I said, we'll get to him a little bit later. But first, uh, what is it? The first season we did this podcast, and we talked about how AJ Hinch didn't want the roller coaster of a season. <laughs> and I don't know, maybe twelve times I've been like, "Well, you're you're, you're kind of on the roller coaster with this team," and I'll say it for the thirteenth time. Well, you're kind of on the roller coaster with this team. Five straight wins, four straight losses. I believe by a combined six runs, a lot of one-loss uh, games in there. This is a team on the margins, Cody. This is a team on the margins. It feels like every single time. Obviously, when you lose by run one run, you have the opportunity to win the game, and you don't take it. Torque had a couple opportunities with the bases loaded this weekend. They did not take advantage of. That's just that's just like you know small examples, not calling them out, but just like small examples. Uh, your observations this week, Cody, with the rain delay that wasn't the four-hour doubleheader. Uh, the win streak, and and you dove into the numbers, which we'll get into in a second. But your impressions of the team this week where you have close wins and close losses, and, and then we're trying to kind of really figure out, like, just what are they? Yeah, it's really tough to encapsulate given the the five-game win streak followed by a four-game losing streak. You know, when they, when they were rolling and they take both ends of the doubleheader against Cleveland – uh, I was never jumping on the bandwagon of like, oh my gosh, you know, is this this team going to overachieve or whatever. It was like, as, as ugly as those first few games were against Tampa, against Boston, you know, I still believed they weren't that bad, that things would get better as the year progressed. So I kind of viewed that winning streak as water finding its level a little bit. Suddenly their record was, what, 7-10, and 10, and it's like, oh, that's probably tracks with, you know, about about what their record might be like season long. But you do think, you know, can they go into Baltimore? Can they win at least one? Maybe take two, you know, win a series, get rolling a little bit, be interesting into May, into June. That would have been nice, right? And and they still may be interesting, um, but things didn't go that way. They went to Baltimore, and to put it simply, they didn't hit the ball. And that, so I, I think, you know, if, if we're going to boil it down to something simple – 
This team cannot hit very well. It has to pitch well. It has to play good defense. You're going to get that some nights. You're not going to get that every night. Um, and I think if you kind of take a step back and look at the whole of what we've seen from the Tigers, it's kind of a realistic representation of what they are. They're a, they're a below 500 ball club that needs a lot to go right to win even 70 to 75 games. Uh, there's a version of this team that can play pretty well and can be fun, but because they're this team on the margins, because there's not a ton of talent on the roster, because there's some disjointed parts, uh, it, it's hard to get everything to go right consistently. Sunday's game was a great encapsulation of that as well, where Eduardo Rodriguez is dealing, but you end up losing, A, because you didn't hit, which magnifies then two defensive miscues, Akil Badu missing a cutoff man, and then a... Uh, was I think it was officially scored a wild pitch that you know probably could have been blocked but wasn't blocked in in extra innings. Well, Sh- uh, Shreve, Shrive, I'm sorry, I'm uh, missed that again. I mean, that's an error right Shreve. there, Shreve. That and he did pitch well today. Um, you know, don't get that misconstrued. But that's an error. I don't know what they officially ruled it because I don't really care what they officially ruled it because everything's a hit. <laughs> But that's an error. He needed to make that play, and guess who scores the tie and run there? By the way, shout out uh, Veerling for a great slide to to get the go ahead nice. run. So that that will be worth noting later in the Harris kind of guy rankings. You know, I look at this team seven and thirteen. We talked about it before the season. We definitely lamented about it as it was happening. This is still a rough stretch. If you told me they'd be 7-13 and 13 with these kind of close losses, like prior to the season, I would have been like, okay. Okay. Actually, you'd probably be okay with that. Yeah. Not thrilled, but there's a world where you can see it being a lot worse. Yeah. And after they started 2-9, and nine, it was possible to see it being a lot worse. Exactly. There's enough quality baseball in there there's enough quality wins in there and especially you know with eyewitness in person those two ga- the first two games in boston or not in boston versus boston i was like oh god you know and i'll tell you what you know obviously i wear my tiger's pride on my sleeve metaphorically on my head literally a lot of times and you know i got guys in softball teams like oh you know they, they you know won some games you know you know co-workers oh they you know won some games so you know that felt good. I don't want to take away from the good feeling of a five-game win streak because it's not nothing. It's not nothing. There are no cupcakes in there schedule-wise to get there. But as we've said, we never seem to get to record like after after the good days. I guess last week was after a good day, but we didn't get the full five. Game <laughs> it was after streak. a bolt day. Is Actually, what it was. that's right. That was the. It was at, I've tried to block that from my mind. It was after a good like end to the week, but it was a bolt day, and so we were. I listened back to that obviously as we were uh, as I was editing it and I was like <sighs> you know if they would have just like canceled it one hour in Cody and I would have been in such better moods but it was so dumb oh. it was so dumb we were just <laughs> I apologize I I think everybody was in a bad mood I literally just got a call a couple hours ago from from our boy Tim and he was like yeah like I was like following that cuz you know he he dabbles in the he dabbles in the in the gambling he was looking to get a, a prop on a uh, Matthew Boyd first inning strikeout, 
And he was like, you know, I kept waiting, I kept waiting, kept waiting. Then all of a sudden they canceled it. He was upset. So we're not the only (laughs) ones, Cody. We're not the only ones that were upset about that. I feel like that was a universal feeling. Uh, I, I really did like what you said there about things having to come together kind of all at once. And one little thing slips that causes, you know, these one run losses, you know, and you wrote a story this week about like the stats that define the Tigers season so far. And, you know, 20 games in your season's not defined, right? But 40 is sort of the moniker that a lot of people use. So we're halfway there. And I thought it was really good timing for you, even though this published prior to 20 games. But you see what I'm saying. Uh, I thought it was really nice that you did that. If you're an athletic subscriber, you can read it. There's a lot of good stuff in there. I'm not going to spoil everything because I want people to subscribe and, and read your work. But I am curious when you research this and when you were kind of putting it together, you're, you obviously you're talking to guys about certain things that are going on, namely A.J. Hinge. Obviously, he's the head of the operation. What kind of stood out to you? Which one of those kind of spoke to you a little bit more? Or what was your favorite? Or, you know... And when you recall that story, what kind of makes you think, yeah, that's why the Tigers are where they're at right now, if that makes sense? Oh, yeah. Scott Harris and A.J. Hinch have preached this control the strike zone thing so much that it can become easy to make fun of. But when you look in the numbers and just when you think about how the game is played, it is entirely true. So I think my favorite stat was came down to first first pitch strikes. The Tigers started 2-9, and nine, and their pitching staff ranked 28th uh, with a first pitch strike rate of 58.1%. So they were toward the very bottom of the league in getting ahead of the count. They go 5-1 and one after that. Over those six games, uh, both starters and relievers threw first pitch strikes 67.2% of the time. That was second best in the league. And it's like, oh, funny. You throw first pitch strikes, you win, you don't, you lose. Um, And so, you know, this is in relation to the Tigers pitching staff, which still did have a pretty good uh, series in Baltimore. But I thought, you know, it it goes both ways at the plate when the Tigers were winning their chase rates were were down. It seemed like the hitters were often in better counts, at least having better at bats. The quality of at bats I did not think was as good across the board in Baltimore. Uh, it really reinforces this narrative that we constantly hear of dominate the strike zone, control the strike zone, get in good counts, get in advantage counts, take advantage of leverage. Uh, but it showed up so, so palpably in the numbers. There are a lot of other stats in this story that mirror that both offensively and from a pitching standpoint. But it was funny to just kind of look at the splits and see how crystal, crystal clear that was in the numbers. So interesting and obviously I'm, this is not meant to be a criticism at all, but interesting that we talk about how the Tigers just you know aren't hitting you know with these losses, and you pull up a pitching stat for your you know for your first one, so that just kind of speaks to the complexity uh, uh, of of trying to build a team with a new front office and what they're looking for, and obviously a lot of new pieces here. So like I said, not a criticism, just found it interesting. Uh, I will say Dan Dickerson on the radio says this a lot, and I agree. I do see higher quality at-bats. 
I do see higher quality at bats as the season progresses, and I, and I don't have the numbers in front of me as you know. Well, this is when you know the strikeout rate went down, and then they started winning games or whatever. I'm just going by feel and and what I see, and the at bats were of less quality when they started out two and nine or you know two and seven. I I, I believe. And since then, they have gone of higher quality. So I remember thinking uh, right when this metaphorical line of demarcation happened, I was like, this seems like a rather simple thing. Why did they not start out having quality at bats? Because that seemed to be it was almost it was almost like uh, the message of failure had to set in before, like the new hitting coaches uh, mantras be like, oh, okay. Yeah, I see what you're saying now. You know, <laughs> you know. So that's just a non-statistical observation there. Uh, this th- bad transition here by me, but I I can't not talk about it with you since you were there. Um, I just wanted to get your perspective on a four-hour doubleheader like that. That was so unique that it was a what a semi-breaking story on the athletic like your editors decided mm-hmm. we needed to write about this i got a no vacation about it warranted mind you but uh i just thought it was awesome because you know with the pitch clock and that was our first experience with that they made nash literally espn bottom line tigers doubleheader four hours and you know whatever so you were probably thinking you were in the ballpark there the entire day and I think you were probably able to get yourself a decent little dinner that uh, that day. So what was it like seeing a double header in uh, in I think it was like six hours with the wait in between or whatever? Like it wasn't long. How how was that for you? Yeah, it was nice. I mean, it's still a long day. Don't get me wrong. You show you know three and a half four hours before the first game, and you're you're still there all all day. So it didn't feel uh, like it just flew by, but. There, I've covered doubleheaders that can seem really long or the games get boring and you're just you're kind of zoning out by the midway through the second game if it's not close. This one was smooth. It rolled right along. You know MLB was loving it and wanting to promote it. Um, I mean, all these games, even this Sunday game, it's like, all right, we're recording this pod around five instead of seven. Like, that's a game changer, you know? Uh, so we continue to see, especially when you cover a team that doesn't hit the ball. Like, some, these games go by quick, man. Uh, no, it, it was nice. Um, you know, no complaints here from me. Let me put it that way. And I think the same for the players, you know, those double header days are long, long for, and it was cold that day, you know, for the players, for the manager, the guys that are just having to stand there. Uh, I'm sure they were as big of fans, uh, of the, the four hour double header as anyone. Yeah. You know, in the beginning of that double header, Kerry Carpenter obviously hits the walk off home run and, you know, I work in the sports collectible industry, and so one of my coworkers sent me the Tops Now card that they made for Kerry Carpenter. You know, whether I wanted to buy one or not, and it's not that I didn't want to buy one, but it also didn't look good because he had like the ski mask on, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, this is a cool moment, but it's not as cool as if it would have been good weather." Uh, so down, yeah, just a little comic relief there. Uh, another thing, Cody, that you wrote, and I found this fascinating. So I want, I want to get and get the backstory on this and your research on this because it was so well researched. And and I'm gonna add a nugget or two to it if you if you don't bring it up organically here. 
we we just talked about the Tigers being on the margins and the importance of first pitch strikes. How does that happen? A lot. Receiving skills, right? The catcher position you wrote about, and you went deep, deep into the history of the catcher position, uh, which was funny to kind of read about, you know, standing 10, 20 feet or whatever behind the plate and then slowly coming up. And then a <laughs> shout-out. I did not expect this. A shout-out to Charlie Bennett, uh, who I'll talk about here in a second. I, I, I really like that you did that there. Uh, Jake Rogers talked a lot about this. A.J. Hinch. So we had, like, so many examples here. We had just, like, the general evolution of the sport, which obviously has been happening, is continuing to happen. That's just That's just how it goes. And then reluctance to accept something and then going in and buying in, which is – you think of A.J. Hinch as this progressive manager. But even this was something in terms of – and I'm not going to spoil it. I want you to go, go into it. This was something that he was kind of reluctant to go into. So the evolution of the catcher position, how the Tigers are attacking it and all that stuff, I thought that was fascinating – Reporting this story, did you feel did, did were you as enthused kind of learning about some of these intricacies that the the little stuff that makes a big difference, the marginal stuff that goes into just you know the most basic aspect of baseball, which is pitcher, throw, catcher, catch. Absolutely, you know this was one of those stories that was a ton of fun to report on because you just feel like you're learning the whole time. I mean, I. Had, Kept hearing nuggets about, you know, different different things the Tigers change, different little catching techniques. I think we've probably talked on here before. Eric Haas setting up closer to the plate because the Tigers just looked at data from across the league and realized he was, you know, six inches deeper or whatever than, than the average major league catcher. Um, Jake Rogers literally changing the way he's caught his whole life with his, his thumb facing up and now his thumb is facing down, you know, and it's it's totally changing the way he receives the ball. Uh, but then going in and talking to someone like Jake, and it, I think this is a reminder that catchers love to nerd out on this stuff. And Jake just starts kind of giving this history lesson. He didn't he didn't bring up Charlie Bennett, unfortunately. But uh, you know, as I was looking, doing some of my own research, I was like, oh yeah, you know, this guy's wife made him a chest protector, and he wore it underneath his jersey because he didn't want to get mocked by the fans. But he was already known for getting closer to home plate than everyone else in baseball at the time. And he was able to throw out would-be base stealers and do some other things as a result of that. And it was kind of slow to be embraced. And then that next thing you know, like, we have masks and we have gear and catchers are right behind home plate. Uh, pitch framing is really nothing new. It's been all the rage for almost a decade now. But we're still kind of learning what techniques are best. The prevailing thought for a long time has been, all right, if you go to the one-knee setup, you can... Uh, get lower you can you can go beneath the zone with with your glove and frame strikes that way but maybe you risk blocking maybe you risk more pass balls more wild pitches unfortunately we're saying this right after the tigers lose on a wild pitch but um and jake rogers tried to stop that ball with his glove i don't know if it matters what setup he was in i think it could have been blocked as he had he used his, his lower body uh, but anyway, you know, again, the numbers are starting to show over time, especially now that more and more catchers do this. There's a bigger sample size. Catchers don't actually give up more pass balls or wild pitches, at least not in a way that is easily detectable 
in the numbers. And so, you know, AJ Hinch, I mean, I remember I had a scout tell me last year, like, oh, Tigers catchers don't really set up on one knee like a lot of the rest of the league. And it was really because AJ really valued a base. He thought 90 feet was worth more than three called strikes throughout the course of the game. And he's big on setting a proper target, right, as a former catcher, which is an art you don't even really think about unless you are a catcher. Uh, but, you know, Scott Harris comes in, they look at numbers, data a little deeper this offseason, and AJ, you know, guy in his late 40s, guy who's viewed as a progressive manager, even though he had this older traditionalist stance on catcher setups, changed his mind. And, you know, as we've seen, Tigers, both Eric Haas and Jake Rogers are getting for, getting extra strikes for their pitchers at a much higher rate so far this season. Eric Haas, who can be tough to watch defensively sometimes, it's a reminder of the things that don't always show up on the eye test. His framing rates in the 86th percentile in the league right now. He's doing a very good job. He's framing better even than Jake Rogers. Um, and so these are some of the small things on the margins that can help you uh, win a few more games throughout the course of the year. I'm sure you came across it on your research, but there may be some people. So like Charlie Bennett, like I had this this book, and actually I think I'm going to bring it up sometime, maybe in the off season or whatever, because there's some stuff in there that's inaccurate that bothers me. And I'm just, you know, kind of a nerd like that, and that might be a good off season pot topic. But anyway, Charlie Bennett was basically the first great ball player for Detroit, the Detroit Wolverines at the time. Uh, I'm sure you came across this. Did you come across why they named the original corner ball field Bennett Park? Uh, I've absolutely read that before, but I don't. Uh, I don't recall the full story off the top of my well, head. Well, he, you know, he was just a beloved ball player, and he got in a train accident. He was trying to get on a train. Oh, that's right. And, yeah. and uh, it was a little slick out, and he tried to, you know, get onto the railing and get onto the step, and uh, slipped train ran over his legs was a double amputee and he was beloved enough that you know i believe he lived in detroit like you know afterward i don't know about the rest of his life and they named it you know bennett park and mm -hmm. that was where i mean that was the original corner ball field and we had a, a listener say he should be in the hall of fame and if you look at the way that yeah. players of that era are judged for hall of fame status i'm Definitely not going to tell you that you're wrong. The discussion of, like, you know, should we put all these people in the Hall of Fame is a different discussion, but he could have been grandfathered in easily. He was that good in addition to the innovations that he had for the position. It's funny that you mentioned uh, how he put it underneath his jersey. We think the notion of uh, toxic masculinity was invented <laughs> within the past, like, however many years. No, 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 no. He definitely wanted to. He did not want to be considered not macho by uh, <laughs> by having a chest protector when he was playing. <laughs> the kind of way of saying he didn't want to get heckled, but no, he it was a definitely a macho protection that he did by not showing his uh, chest protector there, which is uh, society then would have shamed him for wearing the chest protector. I now want to shame society for not playing when it's forty degrees and windy. <laughs> Come on. Play these there, there you go. Some things change. Some things uh, stay the same. <laughs> but, you know, it, it did lead me to an interesting thought, though. I was trying to think of, like, the health of the Tigers catching situation and what's going on 
so far this year and what I believe it to be in general. Why do I say that? I say that because I believe Jake Rogers has done exactly what I expected him to do. He's had a few pops, had some key hits, played some nice defense, called, I'm not going to say he's called great games. That's probably like an exaggeration. We tend to use the term great a little bit too much, but I feel like he's called games well this year. Good. He's a good game caller. Eric Haas, I feel like, has done defensively what I expected him to do. His bat hasn't come around as expected. So I kind of say like, what I ex- if, if what I expected happened for both guys, I'd feel really healthy about the catching position. Haas's bat has not come around thus far, so it has me kind of questioning. Not that I'm questioning Haas, but just like questioning the health of the catching situation. As we talked about last week, in my mind, Jake Rogers is catcher number one. However, Haas is going to be in the lineup, deserves to be in the lineup. He needs the at-bats in order to get going, and he will get going. I have zero qualms about that. But 20 games in, bottom line is the catching position as a whole is lower than what I thought it would be coming in. So in your opinion, the health of the catching position, Cody, what do you kind of make of it? Especially how key it is having a former catcher as manager and then – as I'm sure Federer puts a lot on their plates as it comes to game calling, game uh, preparation, and all that stuff. Yeah, as much as it would be nice to think you had like this real established everyday guy, I think the reason Scott Harris did not seek out one of those is because the numbers over the past few years have showed the Tigers are actually getting by okay at catcher with a guy in Eric Haas who can hit. And Haas isn't hitting right now, but he's framing pitches so well suddenly that it makes him valuable i i do question his game calling that's something you can't really grade or account for in the metrics i think uh that might have bit the tigers a little bit especially this weekend in baltimore but tigers rank 11th right now 0.4 combined war from their catchers uh 0.4 is not a lot i think it's a reminder only a select few teams really have true standouts at catcher um you know sean murphy's killing it right now and baltimore being one of them well yeah adley rushman oh my gosh he's uh living up to all expectations right now if you look at that tigers catching situation is 11th in the league i think as the year goes on it's possible jake rogers probably regresses offensively a little bit and chances are eric haas plays a little bit better offensively so uh, I, I, I think that's all right. I think it's not at all wrong to assert the Tigers could be around league average in terms of their catching position. Last year, Detroit ranked... Last year, Detroit ranked 15th, 1.4 combined war from their catchers. That was with Tucker Barnhart having an absolutely abysmal season. They're 15th in overall catcher performance. Yeah, yeah, and again, no Jake Rogers, obviously, and I I, I did want to just go like just a, a tier lower here because what you said in regards to reporting this story obviously is accurate in terms of AJ's attitude, meeting with Scott Harris, everybody's going to love, as they should, a collaborative effort about building the team, building the structure and how you how you attack opponents and all that stuff. 
But Jake, in your story, also just generally credit like he credited the work that he did while rehabbing Tommy John. So I, I maybe this is just me just trying to not make this another thing to dump on Alabila. But I I kind of want like the record to state some of this stuff was going on technically before Scott Harris became uh, became head of the team. Right, and not to say that Al deserves credit, but like there was infrastructure in place that Al created that also led to this. You know what I mean? I because I I think sometimes we just fall into the lazy narrative of before when Al was GM, the light switch was off. Just you know whatever you want to metaphorically make that to be, and then when he wasn't, the light switch. When when Scott came, the light switch was on, and it's not that simple. It's not that simple. Maybe there's there there there's warranted truths there, but it's not that simple. And I also want to say credit to Jake for finding ways to improve when he couldn't physically play. Uh, that Tommy, I mean, I remember it's not it's, it wasn't that long ago where I was reading like stories of guy like non pitchers that had Tommy John. It's like, oh, what'd you do? Oh, I became a great Madden player. Uh, <laughs> you know, like not to say that. That means they weren't working hard or rehabbing or all that stuff, but it seems like Jake really took advantage of his time, and we've seen the fruits of his labor so far. So I just want to give I just want to give credit there, and then also kind of make things of the record that things were kind of going on before Scott got here, because I didn't want to turn this into like oh, the Tigers were in the basement when it comes to this stuff like prior to Scott Harris getting here. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, number one, it's crazy how many stories we've heard, especially since the pandemic year, of guys who make their biggest improvements when they can't physically play a season. Um, you know, Jim Harbaugh used to say, like, you get better at football by playing football, and maybe that's more true for football. It's probably not. I think in all sports, if you can train specific skills more, it's going to translate to your performance in a game versus a season where you're you're barely really getting to work on stuff. You can't really revamp stuff. It's kind of crazy. These stories we have heard come out of the pandemic or in the case of Jake Rogers injury. Um, he credited a lot Tigers um, field coordinator and catching coordinator Ryan Cinco. Uh, I've never talked to Ryan Cinco. It's one of these guys Tigers don't let you talk to. He's probably like, let's talk to him. Seems like he knows what's going on. Seems like it might be good for the organization so that maybe more people know about these things the tigers have done plug cinco was one one of the guys hired um you know around the time ryan garco was hired that offseason alavilla was still the gm it was after aj's first year as manager one of the many guys they hired from the dodgers system almost like the dodgers have been on to something for the past you know eight years or so give or take um so i was you know who was the the impetus for making these hires was it aj was it garco who knows Al was the GM. Al made some really good hires uh, his last year. Um, unfortunately, you know, obviously not going to stick around to see kind of the fruits of those hires in the minor leagues. But it is worth noting um, the revamping of the Tigers minor league system really happened the year before Scott Harris took over as the president of baseball operations. All right. So I know this is random, but I kind of want we, – we've never – encountered this before in our podcast cody so i, I kind of wanted to just kind of hash this out for a couple minutes and we'll get to some more pressing topics so eduardo rodriguez has a perfect game through six and in the midst of that 
in the sixth inning, if my uh, crowded mind is correct. Ryan McKenna lays down a bunt, tries a bunt for a base hit. Now, I used to have a book, and I'm sure it's in storage here somewhere in my uh, recording studio. It was like the unwritten rules of baseball. And it, it was things that would yeah. range from on the on deck, on deck circle, like not swinging your warm-up swing to time the pitch at the plate. There was a time where if you did that, the next the next throw that the pitcher would make would be at you, even if you're in the on-deck circle. Uh, some of that's kind of silly, obviously. But one of the things in there was bunting for a base hit when a pitcher is throwing a no-hitter or a perfect game. So since we've never encountered that, I was, kind of, I was just kind of curious on your thoughts, Cody. You're not a guy that's like laden, I believe, to like the unwritten rules of baseball, but just in general, I just kind of, you know, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think most unwritten rules are very stupid. Like if it's within the actual rules of the game, why can't you do it? In the case of bunting to break up a no-hitter, um, you know, if it's like a 5-0 game in the eighth inning and you do that literally to try to rob a guy of history, I, I understand why that might upset someone. That's pretty cheap. I have no problem with what McKinna did because it was a 0-0 game. The game was still in the balance. They were trying to get a base runner not solely to break up a no-hitter, but to get a guy on base to try to score a run. I think that's something that if Eduardo Rodriguez had given up one hit or two hits would be perfectly fine. Um, something you could see a, a fast runner trying to do to just manufacture some momentum. So I really have no problem with it in that scenario. Yeah, I don't have a problem with it. I think I would have a problem with it in that scenario laid out where it's like 5 nothing or 13 nothing, which... Shout out slash ah, damn to Drew Smiley, former Tiger. Uh, that that sucked. Uh, but I think it's. Is there a way? Can I be in the lane where I think it's lame, but also I don't have a problem with it? Can I be in that? Can I can I can I do that? Because I think I think it's like if, and I I don't know his. I'm not watching every game that McKenna has or whatever. But it's like, is that something you would do? Is that something you would actually do? Uh, because if it was, okay, cool. But I think it's lame. But I don't have a problem with it. I wouldn't, like, criticize. Like, if he had gotten the base hit, I wouldn't come here saying, like, he, you know, broke the unwritten rule. But I, when I, but I will say, when I watched it live, I was like, okay, bro. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, <laughs> uh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah okay, bro. Uh, but anyway, credit. it didn't matter, but I just thought that was uh, interesting. It would have been something that we would have talked about probably more heavily had as a sub note of eduardo's uh perfect game that unfortunately was not still stellar and we'll get to eduardo here in a second also before i forget i went out to uh dinner with my lovely wife last night we were listening to the rangers broadcast the uh tigers game had ended the rangers were playing and adolis garcia had three home runs and we happened to be in the car when he was up the next time and I was like, oh, okay, well, we had parked. I was like, don't turn the car off. I want to hear if uh, he is number four. But Willie Horton was mentioned on the broadcast. You know why? Because Willie Horton, shout out Willie Horton always, was the first member of the Texas Rangers to hit three home runs in one game. Wow. I didn't know that. First one in, like in, in franchise, like franchise history, meaning like once they got to Texas – 
first member of the Texas Rangers to hit three home runs in one game. He did that on May 15, 1977. So shout out Willie Horton at the uh, end of I think I have the year wrong. But, uh, uh, but yeah, at the end of his career, he had a three-home run game. So shout out Willie Horton just in general. Yeah, I remember being in Seattle at the end of last year and seeing some pictures of like Willie Horton on their walls. And that's talking about disorienting. Like just seeing him in another uniform at all is is strange, especially in Mariners uniform. Exactly. Yeah, it was toward the tail end of his career. It's kind of easy to forget that was even a thing. Random tangent on unwritten rules. I weird set of circumstances led to me helping coach uh, a youth five on five flag football game this weekend in Detroit, and it was a lot of fun. But we knew going in we were we were supposed to be a lot better than the other team. And we were told, like, all right, make sure, you know, the kids don't run up the score. I never thought I'd be quoting Jim Harbaugh twice on this podcast, but Jim Harbaugh had a good quote. He's like, it doesn't have to be close. You know, I was like, why, why can't we run up the score? And the thing is, it was five on five flag football. So conventionally I'm thinking, all right, I guess, like, if we get up, like, three scores or whatever, we'll stop passing. But our kids were a lot faster than the other team, so we scored more easily running. So we actually had to pass to not run up the score. It was strange. That's not related to anything. Anyway. God. Cody Stavenhagen, athletic beat writer for the Tigers, podcast host of Turn the Corner. More multifaceted than even I knew. Coaching <laughs> coaching flag football. Love it. Love it. One and oh. One and zero, one and zero, one and zero takes me back to our flag football days. We don't have to rehash that, but it takes me back. Uh, all right. So actually, speaking of football, so this week in a couple days when this podcast publishes, the NFL draft will occur, and I'm sure all Lions fans like myself are eager to see what the team does with their two first round picks and subsequent picks after that i will actually be in kansas city for the draft my uh my buddy thomas who's actually at the house right now uh part of this uh, little celebration we're doing tonight it's his bachelor party uh to go to kansas city for the nfl draft so that'll be a lot of fun so if any listeners happen to be in kansas city at the draft you know holla at your boy i'll, I'll be out i'll be uh i'll be enjoying the festivities but i thought you know we're 20 games in there's been a decent amount of storylines with the team this year. Why don't we kind of draft the storylines? Now, I sent you a list, Cody. There's one more spot we could do, we could not do. It's roughly 10, you know, not trying to get too crazy here. But I'll, I'll just list them out here so, so people can kind of follow along. This is in no order. We'll decide as we go. Bullpen. The Javi Baez suspension, a five-game win streak, just Jonathan Scope. The return for the Gregory Soto trade, so that's Maton and Beerling. Miguel Cabrera's final season, Eduardo Rodriguez, Austin Meadows, and I kind of combined, maybe I cheated here, I kind of combined Torque and Green, because I just kind of put them in the same in my head, you know. And, you know, we'll throw in A.J. Hinch, make it a nice 10. A.J. Hinch, just in general, because he's a guy who's gotten some criticism earlier in the year. So, uh, since I spurned this on you, Cody, I'm going to take first overall pick because I want you to get a chance to kind of, you know, formulate your opinion here. Very kind of you. My first 
<laughs> my first overall pick is Eduardo Rodriguez. I'm going to be timely here. Eduardo Rodriguez, trade looming. Not Eduardo Rodriguez. Eduardo Rodriguez, trade looming. Because, you know, not to mention what he did today, but earlier this week he went eight innings. On I think it was on Tuesday. Had 10 Ks. Stellar. I put... I put on Twitter, I was like, yeah, it's a pretty good day for Wado's agent. And I'm not going to be like repetitive, but if I were to do it today, I'd been like, pretty good day for Wado's agent. Eduardo <laughs> Rodriguez should, and he will, but he should opt out of his contract after this year. The market, he is underpaid right now, and he should make as much money as he possibly can in his career. Pro Labor Podcast. We haven't had a chance to say that in a while, Cody. Pro Labor Podcast. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things where we're not... See, I take it number one overall. We're not talking about it that much, but it's like with every good outing, it's like, oh yeah. Oh yeah, this guy. You might be able to get something good, even though he is going to opt out of his contract. But he is pitching in a way, A, that was envisioned when he signed the contract last year and B where, all right, you feel good. Like you have a chance to win when he's on the mound. Also you string these together and we're going to be able to, uh, recoup some good assets, not great assets because of the opt out, but good assets to a team that is in need of a, of a starting pitcher, a lefty starting pitcher, and also might be the first case for the Tigers where they benefit from the universal DH. Little side note. So you're not just going to have aggressive teams in the American League that might try to get a pitcher at the deadline, if you see what I'm saying. So that's my number one overall pick. And we can kind of break this down, you know, as we go. But I, I just feel like we're not really talking about the trade part of it just because it's still not May. I understand. But every time he has a good outing, I'm thinking trade and good for Eduardo, opt out, get some money from somebody. So that's my number one overall pick storyline of the season. Definitely fair. If I'm Scott Harris, I'm kind of kind of licking my lips, you know, after these last two outings thinking, yeah, what can I get? What might I have to work with come trade deadline time? I was also looking for an example like what can he get? The opt-out makes it so tricky. What's an example of a guy getting traded with a, a multi-year opt-out still ahead? Quick one I found back in Tigers history, Justin Upton. Had, I think, three more years on his deal when, with a looming opt-out when the Tigers traded him in 17. In return, they got uh, Grayson Long, who Al Avila viewed as a future Major League starter. Uh, Grayson Long pitched all of, I think, one game in the Tigers organization and ended up getting hurt and retiring from baseball. But at the time, he was seen as like, okay, I think. Uh, anyway, my draft pick, I got to draft the hobby benching. That's what the people want, you know. It's what get got the most reads on the athletic. It's what has the most national appeal. It's a big storyline. We are not done talking about it. We're going to be talking about it all year based on the ebbs and flows of hobby bias, based on the perception of A.J. Hinch. Um, probably to the point it's going to get overblown if it hasn't been already, but you look at this team, not a lot of big names on this team, uh, doesn't get much better than the hobby benching in terms of overall storylines. 
You're right. And I, I thought about making that number one overall. Uh, quick side note. So you talk about comparisons or whatever. I know this is not apples to apples. Uh, but you, you basically got to look at trades that are like there's, I, I just feel like there's a very small percentage chance that Eduardo wouldn't opt out just in general. So I'm looking at like expiring contracts and I just, I know he's not CC Sabathia, but I went and looked up the CC Sabathia trade and you know, there's a handful of guys that were in that trade, but, uh, <laughs> A player to be named later was also in that trade to Milwaukee. Or excuse me, to Cleveland, excuse me, to to Cleveland. That player to be named later, Michael Brantley. I didn't know that. Really? My yeah, God, he that's was a pretty good uh, player to be named later. Yeah, right it's, pretty, it's pretty good. Uh, in regards to the Javi thing, so did you know that Javi is on a hit streak including that game? I know he didn't play today, but he was on an eight-game hit streak, including that, including that game. So not it's not bad. nothing. Not bad. And if you include that game, he was hitting three forty-five, and he had the key uh, tying hit in uh, on Friday's Friday's game, scored a keel Badu. Uh, you lay out those scenarios post benching. Everyone's gonna be like, "Oh yeah, Javi responded real well." So we'll have to see. Did we do we have like any tangible update about his like finger or whatever? Like, is there anything really? Well, out- supposedly he's supposed to be able to play on Monday. We'll see. I'm a little. I, I was still a little surprised he didn't leave the game right away when it happened. It looked mm-hmm. kind of nasty. I, get, I don't know how much pain he was actually in. Um, I always worry about hitters and fingers and thumbs. So we will see. But supposedly they. They seem to think, you know, the swelling will go down a little bit and he'll jump right back in there. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, that's... He didn't say he was going to make his next start in five days, did he? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I'm, you know what? Next one up, I'm going to go with the five-game win streak. I think if there was... Now, there's... If we were to talk about this team where their same amount of wins happened with some less sweeps or getting swept i should say you know may, we would probably feel like maybe like a little bit better but a five game win streak in this schedule is a five game win streak i'm not going to diminish it i think the fact that they went on this tear had some walk-offs you know post benching post laying down in boston uh, not in boston against boston and then starting out as crappy as they get it against toronto there was a turnaround is too strong of a word but there was a this is not who we are thing with this team post you know right around the time of the hobby benching so i'm gonna i'm gonna say the five game win streak i i think it means something it doesn't mean anything in terms of like this team will become some surprise wild card team i'm not saying that but it means something because it's a young team a team that needs to kind of figure out ways to win what it feels like to win what it feels like to go on a win streak like that and you and i during the duration of our podcast i don't think we've had a five game win streak in april i'm just i didn't actually research this beforehand pretty sure we did positive the answer is no (laughs) almost positive so i'm gonna say that that is an improvement it means something 
uh, it's not everything, but it was nice to see. And anecdotally for me, it's like, oh yeah, the Tigers won some games. Yeah, you know, you know, teams looking, you know, it was it was some good stuff there. So I'm going with the five game win streak. I don't want to get that to drop too far in our draft. Yeah, I think after that, you know, I would go Nick Maton and Matt Vierling, the return in the Soto trade. Um, neither one of them have been amazing, but both have been really interesting, really fun to watch. I think it's something the fans care about. I think so far the fans seem to like both players. We've seen both players do some good things, show that potential, see why Scott Harris wanted them in a trade. Then you step back, look at their season-long numbers thus far, and it's like, oh yeah, there's probably a reason the Phillies viewed them as non-everyday players, like they bring some skills to your team, but are they really like the guy? Probably not. Um, but it's still something to watch. Maton killed it in spring training. Beerling has all these tools, does some cool things like the like the slide. Good things happen when you actually slide. You know, his, mm. his slide Sunday was, was real nice there at home plate. Um, I just think that's one of the more interesting things to follow. And we have seen just enough from both of these guys that even when they're their batting averages are low, or they're really fighting it at the plate. You kind of, I at least, I want to keep watching them. You know, will either of these guys really um, kind of advance in their level of play over the course of the season and look like a bona fide everyday player? I'm not sure. Um, almost leaning toward no. I think even if they're just both two good utility players, you might still win the trade, you know, quote unquote. Uh, I, that just gives us a good topic all year. Heck, next year, too. Um, fun guys. Good for the clubhouse. I like the storyline. Yeah, and we did get a question about this on Twitter at Cody Sabenhagen, at Kieran underscore Steckley, and at Turn Corner Pod about the is there is there time for a Maton conversation? And to be honest, maybe he's just the victim of his own success. In regards to like how great he was in spring training, and you know he's 131 batting average, as you alluded to, the batting averages aren't hot. He's a negative WAR player right now. He is versatile defensively. He has had those key moments that you like, but you would want more. You would want more from the guy that you're looking to be your everyday third baseman and. Maybe this is an unfair burden, but we're, we have no choice but to be unfair based on the sample size as just in front of us. <laughs> like twenty games in, like you know, you're you're not you're you're not not thinking third, you know, looking at options at third base moving forward. You know, so maybe third base isn't his home. Maybe it becomes second base or something long term. I don't know, but as hyped as he was in spring training another example of like once things get real it did not take that long for him to stop seeing fastballs <laughs> uh, uh which it, was it, not surprising at all it, which was not surprising at sitting all. an unfortunate 129 through 62 at bats let me say this i'm gonna drop a little hot take here you know what i'm getting tired of hearing about getting tired of hearing about at that quality and i say that as someone who who knows baseball and loves the game and understands that at-bat quality is everything. But when all you're talking about is at-bat quality, uh, that usually means you're not actually getting results. 
uh, I, I kind of get tired of hearing about trust the process because in a results-driven industry, if you're not getting re the results, you probably need to change something about your process. I say that understanding the long course of the season and you're going to line into outs and you're going to have you know pitches, a ball outside the plate, get called strikes and things aren't always going to go your way. But if all you have to talk about over an extended period of time is that back quality, there's probably a reason. Uh, I think in my playing career as a high school player, I had I had pretty good at bat quality. The University of Texas wasn't coming and knocking on my door <laughs> because I had quality at bats, though. You know, like 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 you got to actually hit at some point. I didn't ever really do much of that part. Uh, I could work a count. I could go eight pitches with anybody, but you know, if all you're getting out of that is a bloop single, or then you strike out. What's it all for, man? Uh, there's Nick Mason can do some really nice things, but with him, with Torque, with all these guys, yeah, quality at bats are good. Um, you'll also hear me decry when guys are chasing, and we see the stuff we saw all last year, which was uh, guys not even remotely putting themselves in a position to succeed. But I'm just saying you can only lean on the, well, he's actually having good at bats thing for so long. Mate's on 62 at bats into the season. I like what he can do. I'm sure this batting average is going to come up a little bit. He's going to have to learn to adjust to the off speed, though. Um, so, yeah, fair to say he's, he's probably a little overhyped considering he's seeing 129. Yeah, and I'll give credit to Matt for, you know, doing that, those little things as part, like, again, the slide, the speed, it, was it was a great throw from the outfield to even make it a play like I was I was I was shocked he was going left like fundamentally it, it shouldn't have been a close play and it was so credit to him uh but really with a great slide Maton it, like it's funny I echo your sentiment by saying this if Dan has to sell the quality at bats on the radio as a con consistent talking point. And obviously not criticizing Dan at all. This is what he has to do. But if that's how he's trying to sell like interest in the team, it's like the at bats are getting better. The at bats are getting better. It's like, that means there's a larger problem at play, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. so I mean, that means you don't have a lot of talent. It means you don't have good players at the end of the day. You know, who never has had good at bat quality in his entire life. Javier Baez. You know who is one of the few players on this team with an all-star selection? Javi Baez. And what you want is somewhere in the middle of Nick Maton and Javi Baez, right? You want a talented player who gets results and has quality of bats. Because Javi Baez could probably be a whole hell of a lot better if he had quality of bats. But we all know that's never going to happen. Um, I don't know if my point's getting across here. I like the way you said it. There, there's got to be more to sell than just, well, he's having good at bats. Yeah, and... Again, if you're going to, like, say, like, in fairness, well, that's how you get the results. It's, 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 no, it, like, it is. There's a little bit of the same thing, a little bit with the exit velocity stuff. Like, it, this stuff does translate, but you just get tired of hearing about these things that should yield desired results that don't, you know. And that, in a way, kind of brings me to, uh, to my next draft pick right here, the Jonathan Scope story. The Jonathan Scope story, uh, I almost feel bad saying this. But if you go on Twitter, uh, at least for me, I don't know if it happens for other people. If you go on Twitter and you just hit like search and they know that you're like follow the Tigers or you're 
you know, that's one of your, the algorithm says that you care about, and there's a little picture, and it's like, you know, Guardians at Tigers, or Tigers at Orioles, and the picture is a picture of Jonathan Scope just kind of like throwing the ball from second base. Every time I see that, I'm thinking, yeah, Elon needs to update that. You know, like, it's not, it's not the most <laughs> up-to-date, like, image that you ought to have with the Tigers, you know. But he is a he's a he's a bench regular right now i don't know other, any other way to say it he's a bench regular right now i don't even know if i call him a platoon i mean even though that's probably accurate but like uh, I'm, I'm not i'm not phrasing it that way and he changed his facial hair which i thought might you know yield some results a little bit it hasn't yet i will say this it was a little unlucky today he had two line drives to the yeah. outfield Quality right to left at bats you might say quality at bats line drive the left field line drive the center and you know forever that's worth but like you said it, it like it's it, it's not yielding results and he did make you know he did make a couple of nice defensive plays you know today to preserve at the time a, a perfect game but the Jonathan scope thing is something that I feel like would be a bigger story if there weren't like guys that people desire to see play like people like fans see play like behind him so i think i i think the jonathan scope thing is it's become it's become a storyline that i didn't want to see because how is he going to get how is he going to get better you would say regular at bats what's he not getting regular at bats not criticizing him not being in the lineup but I just feel like this is kind of set up for letdown. Yeah, said I'm not talking about DFAing Jonathan Scope until May 1 if he's batting under 200. So looks like we're going to have to revisit this here pretty soon. That story's not not turning in a great direction. <laughs> um, my next storyline off the board, Spencer Torkelson and Riley Green. Because there's so much appeal. Another thing we're going to be talking about all year We've seen a couple flashes from both of these guys, but we're still seeing a lot of struggles from both of these guys. We're talking a lot about at-bat quality. In the case of Riley Green, somewhat surprisingly, we're talking about lack of at-bat quality. Uh, it's been a rough stretch. Uh, still some strikeouts, still just pulling off some balls. Um, wrote about that last week and talked to Riley, and I was encouraged by the fact he knows what's wrong and, and seems aware of it and wants to fix it and all that, but it just hasn't all quite clicked into place yet. You look at these guys like like an Adley Rutschman who didn't set the world on fire when he was first called up, but when he turned that corner, man, he turned it quick and didn't look back. And you, it just makes you wonder with each of these guys, like, okay, is that sort of moment coming? If so, how long does it take? What does it look like? When will we, when will we know? And I think that makes it such an intriguing storyline that you can't help but be fascinated about it. Uh, back to being worried about Spencer Torkelson a little bit. He's having a rough go of things. Um, yeah, surprised at how bad some of Riley Green's at-bats have been. I uh, will not, never really waver from having a ton of faith in him and his potential, but uh, it's been uncharacteristically odd. The um, Just the swings and misses, the pulling his head off the ball, the not adjusting to the back foot breaking ball. And you're just kind of waiting for that click to happen with either one of these guys. Are we so we were kind of sold this offseason 
and I say sold, I'm not saying you guys in the media, but like sold by, you know, the AJs of the world and, and Riley himself about like being key on pitch selection. And I can't tell you that I'm wild about pitch selection for Riley. And, and maybe I'm being unfair. Uh, like I just, I can't, I can't, if you made me say like, okay, I think it is somewhat improved. But I also don't think it's where I anticipated this was like the key emphasis like over the offseason. Oh, I don't I don't think it's improved, unfortunately. It was supposed to be the big improvement. I'm not sure it, it really has. All right, well I mean, there I you guess go. his chase rate isn't as bad as it feels. He ranks in the twenty ninth percentile in chase rate. Um feels even worse than that, but yeah, you know, the swing and miss, not as bad as it feels, but there's still a lot of swing in the miss and, and he's not getting the ball in the air. So clearly he's not hunting the right pitches. He's finding himself in bad counts a lot, I think, through swinging and missing on pitches he should hit and really, quite frankly, being rather easily fooled on uh, breaking balls on the inner half of the plate. Yeah, I agree. And the the torque thing's weird. Like, I don't... I'm, like, less worried about torque right now, and I'm not sure if I should be right there. I'm like less worried about torque because I feel like, well, he, I'll say it like here's why I feel that way. Just emotionally speaking, is because Torque's had more big hits this year. Not to say that he's come up big in every spot. Obviously, we saw this weekend, but I, I remember a game tying hit earlier, uh, like last week, and a game, go ahead sack fly today. Like I just feel like. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just me just being observational bias. I don't know why. I want Riley. I I feel better about Riley Green overall as a prospect, but I just I just kind of feel like okay, ready torque. But I'm looking for. I think it's because I'm looking for Riley to take a bigger leap. I think that's why I'm I'm like a little bit more okay uh, with torque. Okay, so you can go a little quicker here. Uh, next one I have right now is bullpen. I just don't really feel like the bullpen's as bad as we were talking about it two weeks ago. Uh, Jason Foley is looking like your all-star right now. That's not good. I mean, but but he is, and he's your definitely number one arm out of the bullpen. And uh, there's, you know, maybe he unlocks something. Maybe he's, you know. Uh, I'd say your all-star might just be Eduardo Rodriguez. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, I I recant the Foley thing on the All Star, but he's definitely your best bullpen guy right now. I don't know how debatable. I don't know how debatable that is. And uh, you know, he had the air today, but Shreve, like you know, you like what you like what you see. It's hard to get put your finger on Cisnero Lang. I just don't feel like has gotten in the situations that you anticipated him being in at a high volume at this point in the year going into the season. Uh, but you, you still believe in this stuff. I just don't, the bullpen was the number one topic of what's wrong with Scott Harris. Not two weeks ago. And now it's like, it's okay. So that's where I, that's, that, that's what I have as my draft pick. It's okay. Like there, there are things to feel good about. They have, they had like, I think it was a game plus of scoreless innings. 
consecutive uh, there earlier this week. So, uh, like, you feel okay. It was real nice to see. Was Will Vest have a pretty nice outing? It was just one game, but... Hashtag best season. If you just get Will Vest, like, you're... Will Vest, last year quality Will Vest, it seems like this bullpen could improve a lot. I think bullpens are up and down by nature. I still, how many of these guys do you really feel confident trotting out there in a close game is kind of what it comes down to for me. Uh, Not very many of them. I think it's still a pretty flawed bullpen that's going to take some time to correct. Good thing is they haven't completely imploded like they were. Uh, I don't think I also don't think we're going to see a lot more 15 inning scoreless streaks or whatever it was from this bullpen. So looking at the storylines we have left, if anyone is still following this weird draft, it's not really a draft. I guess I guess Miggy final year is what we're left with. Uh, I was hoping to not pick this one because I don't think it's that interesting of a storyline. It feels like uh, this has been a last year that has really been like the last five years and. Uh, it gets repetitive talking about it, and unfortunately, Miguel is just, uh, you know, you want to you, you want to embrace the, like, well, this is the last chance to see a legend, a great player, but kind of tough to watch play baseball right now. Um, I just, it, it just doesn't do much for me, I guess is my way of saying it. That's no disrespect to Miguel and the career he's had, but um, it's just tough to watch. Well, I, I give I will say this. I want to give credit to him. I don't know how he is in the clubhouse, but it seems like he's at least not being a deterrent in the clubhouse in regards to his very limited role this year. And that was something that I'll be honest, given the conversations the past couple years about, oh, I want to play first base, like first year of our podcast i need to be on the field and then the next year it's like okay i'm okay with just being the dh and then this year he's a you know one one time a series guy get his honor that's all well and good um he had his moment with his walk off pinch hit base hit um there will be other moments for miguel this year they'll you know as the miguel celebrations that happen at comerica park play out that will be more prevalent and every, obviously every time he's on the road, he's getting some sort of honor. So hopefully he enjoys it. But in terms of like his at-bats and stuff, like, you know, I I can't disagree with your sentiment. There is one more uh, thing on the board, Cody, and that's uh, Austin Meadows. Mm-hmm. And I feel, I feel, I feel bad, obviously from a person perspective where I hope he yeah. feels okay and, and gets right for his life screw baseball gets right for his yeah. life but there's also an element of you know we you know akil badu has been doing some nice things and carpenters had some nice moments and their playing time is directly correlated with the meadow situation so uh we haven't talked about a lot of carpenter and badu on this podcast or whatever but anytime we do it's always in regards to what what happened with um with Meadows so I think that's something worth monitoring he didn't travel with the team not that he's required to just just saying it you know for the record uh, but it was nice to see him in the dugout earlier uh, so hopefully he's okay so I had that in the um, in the in, 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 to end the draft uh, real quick before we get out of here 
there is only one option for Harris kind of guy, and that is Jay Hen, who is on a 15-game hit streak. He's only had one game this year he didn't have a hit. He's hitting 385. He's, he's starting to get some pop in his bat. Uh, shout out Jay Hen, and that's it. That's it. Jay Hen, the return I, I, for I, I, I do think we got to give a shout out to one Zach McKinstry, who is oh, proven... Yes. You wrong and me wrong yes, and everyone 100%. in the world wrong. He's now hitting two fifty six. He's got two bombs. I think the guy really needs to reevaluate his facial hair. It's it's pretty rough, but guy's doing some good things on the baseball diamond. All of a sudden, look at Zach McKinstry proving Scott Harris right. Absolutely, you're one hundred percent correct. I was wrong on Zach. I I value. I am up for him now. And it's not just because uh, of the socks. I will say it is a long season, but. <laughs> He wears the socks the right way. That's all that matters to me. All right, we got to get out of here. Uh, thank you, Cody, for your time. You can follow Cody on Twitter at Cody Stavenhagen, at Kieran underscore Steckley, and at Turn Corner Pod. Please subscribe, rate, and review Apple and Spotify. Subscribe to The Athletic. Five-star review if you feel so inclined. Got another week of Tigers baseball. Looking forward to it. Like I said, if you're going to be at the draft, holler at your boy. So for Cody Stavenhagen, I'm Kieran Steckley. Everybody have a great week.